From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, June 2nd. Spend enough time in the West, and you'll become familiar with the ins and outs of public lands agencies, like the Federal Bureau of Land Management, which owns 245 million acres of lands in the U.S. That includes about 40% of the lands in Utah. And to manage this landscape, the BLM uses a doctrine of multiple use and sustained yield. That's why you can find oil and gas, grazing, even river running and highlining on BLM lands. But what about conservation? Well, now the BLM is working on a rule that would pretty much clarify conservation as its own use. Congress made clear that preservation, conservation is a use of the public land. It's a part of the multiple use and sustained yield mission. And it only makes sense that BLM would be working now to build that out. That's Steve Block, legal director for the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. And he says it makes sense because of ongoing pressures on the landscape due to climate change. He and others in the environmental world point to a law passed by Congress in 1976, the Federal Land Policy and Management Act, or FLIPMA. I mean, actually have FLIPMA open in front of me, um, and uh, it specifically says the Secretary of Interior, right, who oversees the Bureau of Land Management, uh, shall be required to establish comprehensive rules and regulations after considering the views of the public. And that's what the BLM is doing now. FLIPMA made that directive that has become so familiar in the West, that the BLM's lands be managed for multiple uses and sustained yields rather than simply maximizing extraction. So nearly 50 years after FLIPMA, the BLM is now proposing a rule that would clarify conservation as a use on par with all the others. I do think it's a big deal. I think this proposed rule seeks to clarify what's always been the case, which is that conservation of the federal estate is uh, a part of BLM's mission. It's on equal footing with multiple uses of the public lands, and in fact, is a use. If conservation is a use, well, there's a whole suite of proposals the BLM is now considering to truly make it so. Those include identifying lands that have important climate benefits, like retaining water or fixing carbon. And they're introducing the idea of conservation leasing. So that might be for a tribal nation, it could be for a business to either restore an area that has been degraded or it could be for off-site mitigation. So, for example, if there was a renewable project that was going to have impacts on some public lands, a company could propose to acquire a conservation lease someplace else to either restore or maintain some other tract of land. And that's another way I think that BLM is thinking about how do we conserve these special places while allowing um, some activities to move forward in other areas. As a proposal to public lands management, this rule is not without its critics. Utah's entire congressional delegation has come out against it. They want more time to review it. And Utah Representative John Curtis even introduced a bill that would prevent the BLM from implementing the rule altogether. Much of the criticism right now goes like this. The rule is unnecessary and could get in the way of existing uses. In Utah, 
you know, about two thirds of our lands are, are public lands. That includes the BLM lands, the National Park Service lands, the U.S. Forest Service lands, and and other lands as well. And it's a it's a lot of land. Jake Garfield, deputy director of Utah's Public Lands Policy Coordinating Office. They are essentially Utah's point of contact with federal land management agencies. And Garfield says this proposed BLM rule has the office's full attention right now. That's because they're worried it would restrict current uses, like energy development and recreation. We, we think it could really put more beyond lands in a, in a management framework where there's fewer uses allowed and fewer opportunities to, to use and benefit from beyond lands. And I'd really like the BLM to slow down, work with county governments, with state governments, with other partners, and, uh, you know, really consider the, the long-term impacts of a rule like this and how to, to do something in the right way that will actually enhance and facilitate better conservation of the landscape rather than just pushing out existing uses. Garfield acknowledges the importance of conservation on federal lands. He points to ongoing partnerships between the state and BLM, like their work on restoring grazing areas and reducing wildfire risk. So he sees conservation as something that's already happening. Conservation is super important to the state. It's um, it's a priority for the state government, just as it is currently, you know, for the BLM land managers. The system that's currently in place works well. That's a, a framework that, because it's working well, we... We don't want to put that at risk by the adoption of this new rule. In their justification of the proposed rule, the BLM points to a changing climate and the need to better manage lands, waters, and wildlife, quote, in the face of devastating wildfires, historic droughts, and severe storms that communities are experiencing across the West. They say this rule could ensure lands and resources will continue to be available for future generations. Language like that is something environmentalists like Block say is long overdue. I mean, you know, why do we think the rule is necessary? We know that public lands have a really important role to play in uh, fighting the climate crisis. We know that over the past nearly 50 years, the focus for BLM has really been on extractive uses and less on conservation. And it's going to take conservation, if it's passive or if it's active, to make sure that our federal lands are doing what we need them to do to fight the crisis. The public comment period for the BLM's public lands rule is open through June 20th. The agency held a series of in-person informational meetings in larger cities across the West. The last one is coming up, and it's a virtual meeting. Anyone with an internet connection can join. That's happening Monday. Find links in the show notes. The Supreme Court recently sided with a couple battling the EPA over plans to build a house on a wetland in our region. Some call it a victory for property rights. Others say it puts waterways at risk of pollution. Caleb Radel, with our partners at the Mountain West News Bureau, reports. Michael and Chantel Sackett wanted to build near Priest Lake in Idaho's Panhandle. But the EPA said the property was a protected wetland under the 1972 Clean Water Act. That's no longer the case. The court says the act only applies to wetlands with a, quote, continuous surface connection to bodies of water. Republican Congresswoman Harriet Hageman of Wyoming immediately applauded the decision. 
Today is a great day for Wyoming, a great day for private property rights, a great day for farmers and ranchers. Conservationists say the ruling will have devastating effects. Here's Trout Unlimited President Chris Wood. It compromises and directly weakens a 50-year national commitment that this country has had to trying to make our, our waters more fishable, swimmable, and drinkable. He adds that the court undermining a basic right like clean water is, quote, mind-numbing. I'm Caleb Bradle. After a big snow year, communities across the West are now preparing for flooding. That includes Redstone, Colorado, where the Crystal River flows in close proximity. Hattison Rensbury, with our partners at KDNK, reports as residents prepare for the worst. That sound is sand, purchased by the Redstone Water and Sanitation District, being shoveled, pushed, and pulled into large white bags. Recently, residents of Redstone, Colorado, came together and made over 1,500 bags to curb possible flooding along the Crystal River, and now they're making even more. Some volunteers shovel the sand, while others hold bags under funnels made of PVC, 2x4s, and even an old traffic cone. One organizer is Stephanie Helfenbein, who lives with her family along the river. I asked her about some of the team's makeshift tools. We searched up easier ways to do it, and we just cut 8-inch PVC in 18-inch lengths and beveled an end and scoop them. And these ones, some people put the bags in them and use them to hold the bags to standing up while they're filling. Have you guys done this before? Or is this sort of a new practice? We've lived in Redstone for 17 years, and this is the first time we've had to do this. Okay. And normally, who does this sort of thing? We haven't had to sandbag in a long time. Mm-hmm. And luckily, the, the weather's been kind of mild, so the river's going up and down, but um, we just didn't want to be caught red-handed and try to hurry to get this done. Mm-hmm. So we're hoping that we do all this work, we get the bag set, and nothing happens. I'm Hattison Rensbury. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. A proposed development near Ken's Lake was recently approved for rezoning to allow for overnight accommodations. Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent speaks with Emily Arnson about future plans for the resort. A proposed uh, resort and planned community that would go up northwest of Ken's Lake was approved for a rezone that it needed uh, by the San Juan County Commission just a, a few weeks ago. And this resort and planned community would include about 350 units spread amongst a lodge, some townhomes and duplexes, and some single family lots. Okay, wow. So the approved rezone happened recently. And then, like, what's the next step? Yeah, so the developer now has to submit an application for an overnight accommodations overlay, which is a practice that San Juan County shares with Grand County, um, because nearly all of the units, um, theoretically, developer Jim Schneppel has said that nearly all of the units would be approved for use as an overnight rental. You know, he said the the landowner of those 72 acres in Spanish Valley is seeking to kind of maximize revenue on his land. So that's, that's the reason for that. And You know, interestingly, actually, that overlay is one of the big reasons that the resort was approved for a rezone. Um, San Juan County commissioners and uh, Elaine Gisler, who's the head of economic development and tourism there, have said that San Juan County really needs to increase its tax revenue if it 
isn't to increase taxes on current residents. So I think they're seeking an influx of cash from the transient room tax and the property taxes that would be imposed on this resort and planned community. Mm -hmm. Has there been any pushback about this resort? Absolutely. Um, In the several meetings that's been considered in San Juan County, um, several residents, generally the same ones um, from that southern end of Spanish Valley have voiced opposition uh, to the resort, saying that they don't want to see you know more overnight rentals. They want housing and, and support services for the residents um, already there. Okay. And you mentioned that it would be a planned community. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Do you, can you explain what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, just that the community would kind of be master planned. So all of these units are kind of like planned out from the beginning. Um, there are already, I think, site plans uh, available. Um, and it wouldn't just be kind of this hodgepodge of subdivisions as um, has happened before in both Moab and San Juan County. That's another reason that some planning commissioners said they liked this, is it would bring kind of a more organized form of development um, to Spanish Valley. Got it. But it wouldn't be like a permanent community, like planned community, meaning just like the resort and overnight accommodation zone would be sort of like more organized? Yeah, I think in all likelihood, it would primarily be occupied by um, second homeowners or, you know, folks using it as a short-term rental. Um, The developer, Jim Schnepple, did say that uh, they were now looking at excluding maybe like 18 or so units from that overnight accommodations overlay that could be reserved potentially for workforce housing, maybe with deed restrictions or things like that. Um, but it does seem like most of this development would not go towards kind of permanent year-round residence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to mention about that? Um, just that, you know, the San Juan County Commission approved the rezone with not very much discussion, but the planning commission a few weeks prior had nearly an hour long discussion and debate over this and actually, you know, voted to recommend approval of the rezone, but three to two was very close. So I definitely recommend folks check out um, our story or, and or listen to a recording of the planning commission meeting because there's a lot of interesting discussion there. Okay, interesting. So something else you wanted to talk about was the Cane Creek development, um, their wastewater treatment facility. Yeah, more development news. So the kind of big proposed development that would go up along Cane Creek Boulevard, folks probably remember it first arose in kind of late 2021. Um, they are now pursuing a permit to construct a wastewater treatment plant, you know, on their parcel kind of on the north side of it, which is just south of Moonflower Canyon by like 0.03 miles. Um, so folks the public actually has until June 12th to provide public comment on this potential permit. Um, the URL that you can use to make comment is in the paper. And we, we just kind of did a quick overview of what they're pursuing right now in advance of more in-depth um, kind of investigation discussion of what this development might look like mm-hmm. in coming weeks. So my understanding is that they need their own wastewater treatment facility because they're at a lower elevation currently than the wastewater treatment facility in town. Is that Correct. I didn't actually know that. So I know that, you know, Grand County doesn't, so it's not within the realm of Moab City and mm-hmm. Grand County does not provide wastewater uh, treatment options to that area right now because I don't think there's really anyone permanently living there at the moment. So actually before pursuing this plant, the developers had to go through kind of a formality of asking Grand County essentially if they would provide wastewater or sewer services and Grand County in a formality said no, that was about a year ago. Um, so because of that, they are now, you know, set to create their own wastewater plant and to do so they'd also create their own improvement district, which would be able to tax folks who eventually live in this development to fund the kind of creation and maintenance of the plant. Mm. Does that make sense? Okay. So the bottom line is that they need their own wastewater treatment facility. And so this development, just to remind people, this is for permanent residents or this is for like overnight accommodations? You know, it's not entirely clear. I mean, I went through some of the documentation online. Again, we haven't spoken with the developers in quite a while, but right now online, I'm seeing plans to create just about 
nearly 600 units of housing and overnight accommodations in addition to restaurants and commercial spaces. Um, it's on about 180 acres of land. You know, at least some of those units, yeah, would be zoned for overnight accommodation units, but I do still think they'd have to get approval from Grand County to do that. So it's kind of unclear actually what the makeup of this community could look like. Mm-hmm. Is it controversial to like create your own wastewater treatment facility, especially down Cane Creek where it's kind of a maybe a delicate ecosystem? You know, I think that could be a big question. The proposed site for the plant, as far as I know, is, you know, less than a half mile from Moonflower Canyon, which is a really popular campground, as well as recreational area with petroglyphs. Um, I do know riparian areas, you know, are ecologically sensitive areas. Um, That being said, you know, Moab City's own wastewater treatment plant is right up against the wetlands preserve that we have. So I think that remains to be seen, but I think there are definitely some kind of serious environmental questions the developers uh, will have to answer. Okay. And I think you maybe already said this, but how long do people have to provide public comment? Until June 12th. Okay. Yeah. Great. Where else do you want to take us? Yeah. In other uh, local government news, uh, Grand County is nearing its deadline to figure out how to spend about a half million dollars of economic diversification funds before that program goes away July 1st. Um, The county commission is set to discuss that actually at their Tuesday meeting on June 6th. But for now, we have some insight from the Economic Development Advisory Board, which released its recommendations um, on Tuesday. And that board is primarily recommending that a lot of those funds go towards a new student center that the Grand County School District is going to open up to shore up its declining graduation rates. So really interesting project there. Okay. And so this is the remaining TRT money that they can't spend because the program is being stopped early. Is that correct? Exactly. So yeah, this program funneled some TRT money away from tourism promotion and towards economic diversification. But starting July 1st, economic diversification program goes away. So all that money in the future will go towards tourism promotion. But for now, they're still going to have somewhere between 500000 to $750,000. You know, it's money that's still coming in, of course, because um, some of that money that's being spent, like literally right now, those taxes are eventually going to come to Grand County that just haven't yet. So it's all kind of um, theoretical at this point, but they do have some money they'll need to spend by the end of the month. <laughs> okay, so they're going to spend the money by the end of the month, but they, do they have to spend it on this like student center project? No, not necessarily. There are you know many different options that they could choose that lie within the realm of economic diversification. State statute or state definition of economic diversification is, is quite broad and there's precedent for quite a lot, which is a point that was made at that um, development advisory board meeting. Um, so in addition to the student center, they also recommended a lot of money go towards Utah State University's uh, Small Business Development Center. They already are supporting a position there for three years, but this would extend it to a fourth year. Um, And then also towards a revolving loan fund for entrepreneurs and or small business owners. And uh, that lo- those loan funds are being administered by third parties too. So Grand County could just kind of give give some money to those programs as well for local entrepreneurs. Got it. Yeah. Um, did they give any specifics about this student center and how it would help with the graduation rates? Yeah, absolutely. There's actually quite a long proposal that folks can access in the um, agenda for uh, the Economic Development Advisory Board. Um, this would essentially create a third space for students who are you know, at risk or maybe have dropped out or at risk of not graduating to get their credits and to graduate high school. So the folks that this is intended to help are folks with, you know, social, emotional or behavioral challenges or students who are pregnant or parenting um, or otherwise are very, you know, chronic absenteeism or are very far behind on the credits they need to graduate. It would provide some specialized support. I think there would be teachers really just devoted to help 
helping out these students and would give them a space kind of away from the typical hustle and bustle of the high school to really, you know, get them across the finish line. Um, Because unfortunately, our high school has been dealing with uh, decreasing graduation rates nearly every year for the last 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Sophia. Do you want to also talk about Doug's adventure? Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to direct listeners to our recreation and outdoor section. Uh, My editor, Doug McMurdo, was lucky enough to get a last minute spot on an overnight cataract canyon trip about a week and a half ago. And part one of his two part adventure tale is in this week's edition. And his enthusiasm really, really shines through. And it's very cool to hear about um, how it was, especially the river was so high at that point. It was above 66,000 CFS. Wow. Yeah. Is that like dangerously high? You know, people will say different things. I've heard that 50 to 70,000 can get a little sketchy and then above 70 actually gets easier potentially. Mm. But it sounds like the guides they were with were, were very adept. Nobody was tossed out of the boat. Nobody got close to being tossed out of the boat. So I think it was just a really fun adventure. Okay. That's a boring story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding, Doug. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Sophia. Yeah, thank you. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. The Green River-based nonprofit Epicenter is set to start construction on 10 new affordable housing units there this fall. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News speaks with Emily Arnson about what this housing project could mean for the Green River community. Epicenter is this nonprofit in Green River um, that has always had this overarching goal of establishing affordable housing in the area, kind of for a lot of reasons. And the main one, I think, is that they just see this um, vitality in Green River. Like a really common question that everyone at Epicenter gets is like, why are you doing this? Who cares about Green River? But obviously everyone who lives there cares about Green River. So right now they're embarking on one of their biggest projects with affordable housing, where they just got this $1.73 million grant to build um, 10 new housing units. Amazing. So do they know when construction is going to start? Yeah, so construction is going to start in the fall on the first five rental units. Um, And this is really cool and exciting for a lot of reasons. Um, But a big one is that Green River has this mega housing crisis going on. Um, So I talked to Maria Sykes, who is the Epicenter's founder and director. um, And she said that there's truly nothing available to rent in Green River. Like if she suddenly lost her house, she would have no options at all. Um, And also, they recently had this housing study done by the Kemsey Gardner Policy Institute that does a lot of housing studies um, around this area. And that found that 84% of people who work in Green River don't live in town, which is kind of shocking. Because you would think that maybe that would be the opposite, that people would leave Green River to go find work um, and that a lot of people in town would work elsewhere. But it's kind of this reverse thing happening where the biggest employer is these travel stops in Green River and a lot of people commute in to work at them. So the housing crisis is exacerbated by people who are already living there who you know, want to stay and then also people who are working in Green River and would have an easier time if they got to live there also. Yeah. Where do most people live if they're working in Green River and not living there? A lot of them are just living like elsewhere in Emory County. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's really far. I Yeah, very far. Um, but yeah, these like, like the Loves Travel Stop pays um, like $20 an hour. And so these are pretty good jobs that people are commuting into. But yeah, they would definitely have a much easier time if they could live closer. Yeah. Did Maria talk to you at all about what the houses are going to look like? 
Yes. So they're all multifamily, um, which is also exciting because Epicenter has only really done single family homes before. So they're going to do the first five and then kind of reset and see um, how those are doing and, you know, what else people would want from them. And then they'll build the next five. Um, But Green River and Epicenter are always striking this balance of trying to keep the community like as is, but also be able to grow it. And so obviously things like townhomes and apartments are really efficient for affordable housing because you can put more people in um, less space. But those types of things wouldn't really work for Green River because, you know, a lot of like traditional homes are the housing units that make up the community. And so this housing will like call back to that and have these traditional homes while also still being able to provide affordable housing. Yeah. And I know that they had run up against some problems in the past. Did they get those squared away also? Yeah. So they had this project all set and ready to go in 2019. And then the pandemic happened and um, all like the price of materials went way up and construction went on hold. And then just this year, they've kind of been able to sort everything back out again. Um, But Maria also said that Epicenter reached out to over 100 contractors in the area and only heard back from four. And that was this year. So they're still trying to figure out like a couple of these little issues, but construction will definitely begin in the fall. Okay. Was there anything else you wanted to say about that? Yeah, I think Maria just said this really interesting thing where she said Green River is always going to be a waypoint. Um, Like there's always going to be something in Green River because it's kind of this gateway to the area for travelers and, you know, there's always going to be travel stops and things like that. And so it's really important to maintain the culture of the place because it could so easily just become a pit stop. Yeah. Yeah. And Epicenter is trying really hard to do that. Cool. Yeah. Next up, you want to talk about Artwalk coming up? Yeah, let's talk about Artwalk. Um, yeah, so Art Walks are these events that go on um, during the warmer season, like they pause in the winter and then start back up again. So we had one last month, and then this month, Art Walk will take place on June 10th and is highlighting four locations. Nice. Um, who's showing at these locations? Yes. So it'll be the Tom Till Gallery is highlighting um, Tom Till, the photographer. Moonflower Co-op is highlighting Pine Bones. Um, Gallery Mob is highlighting Whit Richardson and Deborah McDermott. And Moab Arts is highlighting Samantha Metzner. So all of these artists are local. Um, Their work span a lot of mediums. So Tom Till is a landscape photographer. He has this gallery in town, um, which we all probably know. Pine Bones is an illustrator that really focuses on um, like the environment and ecology, and they have this really fun, like texture, almost cartoony-looking style, um, but way more beautiful. And then um, Whit Richardson is a landscape photographer, and Deborah McDermott is an acrylic painter and linocut printer. And Samantha Metzner is a fine art photographer who does these alternative printing processes, like. Van Dyke Brown printing. Um, And a lot of us also know Sam Metzner because she was the community artist in the parks last year. So she spent a lot of time creating art in the Southeast Utah group of national parks. Cool. And so are are their works for sale? 
Yes, so all the works will be for sale. Um, and also during Art Walk, people will have the opportunity to go meet all these artists. So it's a very fun event. It takes place from 5 to 8 p.m. And people are encouraged to kind of like walk around to all the different locations and meet everyone and explore the art. The Moab Arts exhibit is kind of new because it'll be a themed show. Um, and so the theme of Metzner's show explores connection with place and what it means to develop a sense of place according to the show bio and so there'll be like different portraits um, within the landscapes of southeast Utah kind of trying to show how people are connected to the place that we live in so um, so that'll be really cool and it'll also be fun just to catch up with Sam Metzner and see how she's doing um, after being the artist in the parks and then um, Pine Bones will just show a couple works and also the Gallery Moab artists will have their um, works on display. But if you miss the event, all of these um, artists will show their works throughout the entire month. Cool. And it's just kind of open house style, like you walk around and... Yeah, yeah. Some of the places like sometimes have snacks. It's really cute and fun. Cool, fun. Yeah. Also happening this month, Moab Pride. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so Pride Month is in June, and our local organization called MOA Pride is organizing three events this month. MOA Pride has been around for 12 years, and their big, huge goal is to foster queer visibility in Moab. And in the past, the group has focused its efforts on this one big um, annual like parade event, but now they're trying to start doing smaller events spread throughout the entire year. Um, obviously, there's a focus on June because it's Pride Month, but really this reflects like their kind of shift into trying to create more of a local community instead of just one big thing. Cool. So are they still doing the parade? Yes. So the parade um, usually takes place in the fall, but for this month, they're going to do um, on June 9th, they'll have a Skate Moab event. Um, or they're collaborating with Skate Moab to host like a skate night at the Old Spanish Trail Arena. And then on June 10th, there will be a lake day at Ken's Lake. People are encouraged to bring a boat and a blanket and snacks. Um, and then on Thursday, June 22nd, they're hosting this engaging event, which is never really done before, called A Spell for Queer Home, where they're featuring a short film of the same name and then also um, doing performances by like local queer artists. Um, so people who are going to that will kind of be immersed in this film and then have time to discuss and watch these performances. Um, so that's like a really big engaging community event. Nice. Those sound yeah. like good events. Is there anything else you wanted to mention about that? Yeah. So we have contact information um, listed in the article and the people who our reporter talked to said, if anyone has questions or has ideas for events or really wants to get involved, they're definitely encouraged to reach out. Nice. They should do speed dating. That would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Allie. Yeah. Allison Harford, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.